Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Valerie Francis, and I'm a certified Story Grid editor. And I'm a writer, and I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. I'm Leslie Watts. I'm also a Story Grid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. Okay, so here on season two, we're taking the whole season and we're doing a deep dive into Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn. It was published in uh, 2012. And we're focusing on the novel here, not the film, although she wrote the screenplay for the film as well, which is probably why it's so close to the novel. Now, why are we doing this? A bunch of reasons. One, we keep getting asked to do this kind of thing. Two, we are primarily novelists. So even though all of the work that we've done on the Roundtable podcast is absolutely valid and useful, and it's a macro look at story structure, as novelists, sooner or later, we got to get into a novel because that's really where we see the rubber hitting the road. I chose Gone Girl because it's a psychological thriller and I'm writing a psychological thriller. So our goal here is to model the behavior to show you how to, or at least how we tackle a novel study. What are, how are we doing it? What are we looking at? What kind of obstacles are we running into? What kind of challenges are we having? What insights are we having? So that you can then take the novel that is the masterwork for your work in progress, and you can do the same thing so that you can learn and your manuscript will get better. Leslie, did you want to add anything? No, other than... I think one of the things that I'm excited about about Gone Girl is that it's not a book I would have chosen. When we did the film in the roundtable, I was like, I do not want to spend time with these people. But it's the, you know, this proves the, uh, the adage that it's important to read outside of the stories you prefer because Gillian Flynn has done so many cool things that we're going to talk about this season in this novel. And it would be a shame to miss this level of artistry. Now, Gone Girl is a tough nut to crack. I am telling you. It's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> and Leslie and I have been working really hard on it. And before we started this episode, we spoke for nearly two hours, just trying to make sure we were on the same page with some of this stuff, okay? This is about as complex a story structure. Uh, it's definitely the most complex one that I've analyzed. It's nonlinear, which means it doesn't start on day one and run chronologically to to the end. It moves back and forth in time. There are multiple storylines at play here. Um, yeah, there's there's just so much happening. So, all right, so without further ado, Leslie, do you wanna just, will we jump in and get started? So the global genre is a psychological thriller. And just to you know give you a little context, I know you know what a thriller is, but let's talk about what makes a thriller a thriller. The core need is safety. And Sean has recently reformulated the question that this is about. And it's about how does the sovereign individual survive, right? There are lots of different forces of antagonism that are coming at us all the time. 
And it's hard to express our unique gifts, but we must if we want to survive. So that's the core need. And from that, we get the core value spectrum. And we have a full spectrum in this story. We go, at times, we're in full-on damnation. And at times, we're, you know, well, maybe not full, vibrant, thriving life. Um, But we do definitely have moments where we could say it's purely life, right? So we have a full spectrum. Now, the core emotion for a thriller is excitement. And this is what we feel in the core event. It's a kind of, whoo, right? After the fact, when we know how it's going to turn out, we feel this. It's a kind of catharsis, but it's the, the flavor of it is excitement. So that's the psychological thriller. That is the a story, right? That is the um, the primary global story. But this story is full of other subplots and storylines. And the first, I would say we've got an interesting internal worldview shift. Um, you could see it as, you know, there's definitely some morality sprinkled in, um, but I would say what you have are mini internal stories, right? That we get Nick goes through a worldview revelation shift and then has a maturation and in the end makes a sacrifice for someone other than himself. Who knew he could do that? Okay. (laughs) We have a marriage love story, which is Amy's narration of their relationship, Nick and Amy's relationship. We have a little mini obsession love story with Nick and Andy, also obsession love story with Desi and Amy. And then we've got the kind of crime, a little crime story happening too with Amy and Greta and Jeff. So this one has a lot, but we focus on the global genre when we do our first, when we focus on the editor's six core questions, that's where we go. Okie doke. Now, the second question typically in the editor's six core questions is uh, all about the conventions and obligatory moments, but we're gonna jump ahead to question six, which is the beginning hook, middle build, and then payoff, simply because it'll help orient you to the story a little bit. So the idea here is that you summarize each of the three acts in a sentence. So here's what I've come up with. The beginning hook. When Nick's wife, Amy, goes missing on their fifth anniversary, Nick must decide whether he'll provide truthful details to the police so they can find her as quickly as possible or or whether he'll keep certain things to himself. Nick decides to lie and withhold information. And as a result, the police take him in for for informal questioning. In the middle build, the police and Nick investigate Amy's disappearance separately and are operating under different assumptions. The police believe Nick is involved or possibly responsible, while Nick believes that Amy is framing him. When the police charge Nick with Amy's murder, he must decide whether he'll focus on his defense strategy or keep trying to lure Amy out of hiding to prove that she's the mastermind behind this whole thing. He keeps trying to lure her out of hiding and eventually she returns home. In the ending payoff, Amy eventually returns home so the charges against Nick are dropped. When Amy announces that she's pregnant, Nick must decide whether he'll continue trying to prove that she's a sociopath or become the idyllic husband and father she wants him to be. He decides to do what Amy demands so that both he and his unborn, uh, he decides to do what Amy demands. And so both he and the unborn child are damned. Now, I wrote that after this big two hour discussion that Leslie and I had right before we got to, to record here today. So keep that in mind when we discuss theme and controlling idea, okay? So 
this book is a hundred and what seventy thousand words, something like that, um, Leslie. Whew, that's a lot of story to try and boil down into three sentences. So clearly, I've left out a lot. If you think about the heroic journey, the beginning of the heroic journey is all about the ordinary world. We get to see the hero in his or her natural environment. We get, we're introduced to them. It's, it may not be a perfect world, but they know how it works. They know how to survive there. When they cross over into the extraordinary world, this is the antagonist's home turf, essentially. So the antagonist knows how everything works here, but the protagonist doesn't. In, um, like in the Pixar film Coco, for instance, the character literally crosses a bridge into the extraordinary world. That's because it's a kid's movie, so things are happening much more on the surface. This happens to Nick as well. I mean, he's not a, a squeaky clean guy by any stretch of the imagination, but when he is brought in for questioning, in my opinion, he is being taken into the extraordinary world. His wife has gone missing. This is not anything he's dealt with before. We know, uh, but yes, by the way, there's a zillion spoiler alert. So I'm assuming you've all read this book. We we don't know at this point, but by the end of the book, you realize that Amy has been behind this whole thing. Her disappearance is a, a scenario of her making. It's She's in control here, right? And she is the antagonist in this story, very much so. So I see the police taking him in for informal questioning, which technically is not on the page. Them saying, you know, come down to the station and we'll talk about this is not on the page. That's the resolution of the beginning hook. It jumps to saying uh, there's a summary, uh, something like um, they decided it would be best for us to talk about this at the station. So we know it happened, but, but it's not dramatized. And that's right at the beginning of one of the chapters. So that's why I broke the end of the beginning hook there, and it's very short. If you've read uh, the story grid, what good editors know, Sean talks about the math a lot, 25% for the beginning hook, 50% for the middle bill, 25% for the ending payoff. Gone Girl doesn't follow that, not in the way I've broken it down. Um, we've got 10% for the beginning hook, 79% for the middle build, and 11% for the ending payoff. But notice how closely matched that beginning hook and ending payoff are. And we'll, we'll get to this in another episode, I'm sure, but the beginning hook and the ending payoff, the beginning and the end mirror one another, right? They rhyme and they do in this novel. But the fact that even just in the percentage of, of time they take up in the story, they're matching. Um, Leslie, did you want to jump in and say anything at this point while we're talking about the beginning hook? The beginning hook? Um, not really, other than this is, it's really well crafted and that we have, we don't know which way is up. Like a lot of the, a lot of the analysis that we're having to do is only because we know how the story ends. And it was tricky reading it because I had seen the film, obviously, when we did the roundtable episode. Um, and I knew how it was going to end. So that meant that I wasn't taken in by a lot of the the red herrings, I could identify them as red herrings right away and, and that kind of thing. So if you already know, you might miss um, some of the, some of those details, you know, you won't experience them the same way. This is, you, you mentioned something here, I just want to jump off of for a minute. When you're analyzing a novel, the first step is just to read the novel. Don't try to analyze on the first reading because you will so confuse yourself. It's not even funny. So just read the book first, then go back with your notepad or your post-it notes. Or, I mean, I like to work from a print book, but 
that's totally a, a personal preference. Digital works just fine as well. Cause I like to write in the margins and use post-it notes and stuff, but you have to read the book first because otherwise you won't know if something's a red herring or not. Like the whole of Amy's diary is a big fat red herring. But when you're reading it the first time, you just accept it. You just, you just accept that this is um, a truthful telling of events from Amy's point of view, which is why it sucks you in so wonderfully. So the beginning hook then is all about Amy going missing. All right. She, the, the girl is gone. <laughs> Um, the middle build in action story, the primal genre, Sean has uh, proposed a, a method of breaking the middle build down into two parts. And we're going to have an episode on each of these parts so we can go down uh, into each one of them in detail. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that book, I recommend you get it or listen to season seven of the Roundtable podcast, where I, I, every episode in that season, I broke down the story into the four acts to see how they worked out. Now, here's what I really like about middle build one, the first part of the middle build up to that big midpoint shift. It is a beautiful example of the hero's 1.0 code. It is, it's so good. It's so good. So what this is, for the, the, we said that the hero knows how to navigate his ordinary world. It might not be a perfect environment. It might not be his ide idyllic life, but he knows how it works. He knows how to survive. He, he has a set of beliefs. He has a set of skills. He takes this with him into the extraordinary world. It's, it's all he knows. So he tries to navigate the extraordinary world using the same tactics and tools and strategies that worked for him in his ordinary world. And a little bit at a time, it starts to, the, the stakes escalate. Everything gets more complicated. Maybe the first thing he tries, like right out of the gate at the beginning of the middle build, maybe he gets away with something. Maybe one of his old strategies actually works or mostly works. Works enough to keep him on that, that train of thought, that, that, that habit of thinking that his old ways are still going to keep working. And a little bit at a time, it just starts to fall apart on him, right? You get to that midpoint shift that we talked a lot about on the Roundtable podcast. You can't miss it. It is often right at 50% in the book. And if I look, it is pretty close to halfway in, in my novel, like almost to the page. You can, if I hold up my book and look at where I have my marker, it's halfway and it's a beautiful thing when you see these crafts, craft things unfolding. What is the big midpoint shift? Of course, it's when we realize that Amy is not missing, but has left. That diary was not true. It was all a manipulation. This is such a massive turning point. It's like jet fuel that propels the reader to the end of the book. Because this is the place where in our stories, the reader can lose interest. We get lost in the middle build. It gets saggy. It just seems to be dragging on. This is why you have this middle build, uh, uh, midpoint turning. I'm losing my words here now. We've been talking for hours about this book. <laughs> so now that we're recording, I'm losing my language. Who would have thunk it? Um, midpoint shift. This is why we have this big midpoint shift in the middle of the book to inject life back into the story and rehook the reader and keep them going to the end. And this and the second part of the middle build is chaos, right? When the protagonist goes into chaos, everybody the whole story and every character in the story goes into chaos too and it happens in gone girl it's it's a thing of beauty now in the ending payoff this of course is when a amy returns she shows up on his doorstep now as i was preparing the ending payoff i had a couple of questions because i said that the story ends with um nick and the baby 
in damnation because of course the value spectrum for a thriller is life to death to damnation but i asked myself and asked leslie well what does damnation mean really how many levels of damnation are at play here because it's a spectrum even damnation has shades of gray in it and we're going to come back to that more and i'm going to have a lot to say about the ending path when we get to that episode but in the interest of time let's now go to the official question two of the editor six core questions which are the conventions and obligatory moments leslie okay so just as a very quick recap the conventions are the setting the characters and the catalysts that create conflict and set up the change in the story and the obligatory moments are unexpected events and revelations and decisions and actions that actually create the change in the story. So in a thriller, we need obviously a place where death is on the table and damnation as well, right? Because this is not an action story. This is a full on, this is a thriller. So we need damnation to be a very real possibility. So we have this, the setting is the US in post great recession. We have a town in the heartland, North Carthage, Missouri. Um, and then we have a big city, East Coast, New York City, right? So we've got some interesting uh, crossover, right? And in some ways, this felt like Amelia's story. In some ways, it felt like we were exploring these two worlds the same way. So we talked about this in Brooklyn on the round table, that it felt like we were looking at the small village in Ireland and then Brooklyn, which was, you know, a big place. So that's our setting. And we, but we also would want to consider if you're writing a story like this, or really any story, what creates conflict from the environment? And we, at some point, we may talk about that. Um, we have, in the interest of time, I won't go into it here, but this, Gillian Flynn does such a great job of creating these settings and the way the culture was at this, you know, in this time. And it's a very specific moment that we can actually all relate to, even though, even if we didn't live through it, even if we didn't um, experience that in the Midwest or on the East Coast, it's just something we're identifying types in this that we understand. Okay, so then that's the setting. Characters, primary, we have a hero, a victim, and a villain. And, you know, this is what's interesting about this is our hero isn't super heroic right? A hero is someone who makes a sacrifice for the good of others. And so it is more accurate. This is where our, um, our luminary agent terminology for the protagonist, I think, is useful. Now, to be fair, he's not much of a luminary agent either <laughs> for much of the story. But he's the protagonist. Nick is the one we're following. He is the one who's being targeted by the forces of antagonism, right? So the villain is, you know, also, right? It's kind of, it's different. Um, what is it? It's difficult unless you're looking at the story, knowing how it all ends, because there, there are times in there where you think, oh my gosh, he did do it right? Which I think is, you know, was intentional. So it's, it's fuzzy. But when you get to the end, you can see Nick is the luminary agent. Amy is a very able villain. And the victim is, you know, sometimes it's Nick is the target. 
but he, but there are lots of other victims as well of, of Amy's um, actions. Because we have limited time today, I'll move on to catalysts. So these are circumstances that are, exist within the setting that cause conflict because the external conflict is what forces the, the protagonist to face their internal conflict. It brings it to a head. They cannot avoid it anymore. So we've got MacGuffins, right? The MacGuffin, that is what the, what the villain wants that they can only get from or through the protagonist. And here, Amy wants to be adored. She wants the vision of a married life. She wants the really lovely husband and she wants to be able to present that facade to the world. And she can only do that if Nick will get on board and do his part and he's not doing his part, gosh darn it. Um, red herrings. There are so many, as, as you mentioned earlier, the diary is a really big one. And there, but there are so many that because of the, the nature of Amy's crime in fabricating a crime, the whole thing is a red herring that, you know, the, the police are investigating red herrings and hardly ever do they get the cuttlefish, the green cuttlefish we talk about, which are the, the clues hiding in plain sight that, that point to the truth. They, obviously they can't see those. Nick sees them though. Nick sees them because he knows the truth. And so that's what's really interesting is that when you see the truth, the cuttlefish are obvious. And when you don't, not so much. So making it personal is another very important uh, convention. And the fact is that most of the time in a, in a thriller, it's personal from the beginning. It often is right and it certainly is here but nick doesn't know it's personal until he discovers the woodshed full of the items that he knows he didn't purchase but are on credit card uh, statements with his name on them and so it's that moment that he gets aha this is me. And that changes everything. That changes his approach. Once you know it's personal, you have to rejigger the way you're thinking about the whole situation. So, and then of course, a ticking clock, because we need that kind of pressure. If Nick doesn't find Amy, if he can't convince her to come home, he's going to trial. They have enough to charge him and they do. And it's never easy to uh, get a conviction without a body, but it can be done. It can be done. So uh, that's a real problem for him. So these are the situations that you need to set up in a thriller. And this one, it again, Gillian Flynn has ticked all the boxes and not just ticked them, but really innovated them. Because as I, again, as I say, the whole crime of Amy being taken and possibly killed is fabricated. Okay, so we've set it up, we have to pay it off and we do that with the obligatory moments. And here we have an inciting crime indicative of a master villain. Amy is faking her own kidnapping and death. And if that doesn't demonstrate you know, if that's not indicative of a master villain, I don't know what is, right? It's amazing. Um, and, and you got to hand it to Amy, right? Even as we're like, her behavior is despicable. We're like, dang, she's <laughs> clever. <laughs> so, okay. We also need a 
speech in praise of the villain. And we have several really excellent examples of this. And one of them, she actually delivers herself um, when she explains how she did it, right? She doesn't, and it's not a mustache twirling. It's almost there. It's not a mustache twirling kind of thing, you know, ooh, I'm so clever, but she is. It's like, you can't deny it. And that's really beautifully done. Um, but the one that really, I really appreciated were the, the insights from Tommy O'Hara and from Hillary Handy. The names in this story are really interesting and that could be a whole study itself. But Tommy O'Hara reveals when that Amy likes to play Old Testament God when she's not happy. And she's not going to be happy so long. You know, if Nick wins, if Nick gets out of jeopardy, she's not going to be happy. She's going to come back, right? And then from Hillary Handy, we get the insight that Amy has a real problem with people who see her vulnerabilities, who realize that she's not perfect. And who better to know us warts and all, but our spouses or partners, right? And so these together help us realize Nick is in for it. She is not going to give up. So then we have, of course, the protagonist has to become an actual victim. Seven days gone in the woodshed, right? And I should say again that Nick has been the victim the whole time, but it's he becomes a victim and he is at risk of death when the police find what's in the woodshed and when police find the the ostensible weapon uh the uh, the handle for the judy puppet so these are the moments when he is truly um, at risk of losing his life because he because missouri has the death penalty and that's the hook there right amy doesn't intend to actually physically kill him she's using her tools her regular tools that she, you know, that she employs to solve any problem she might have, she is using on her naughty husband. Okay, so then of course we have the hero at the mercy of the villain. And Valor, you made the great point that this is the whole book. For this entire book, there is never a moment when he, when Nick is not in some way at the mercy of Amy. But the moment when she returns and she has the power still to hang him and that his fate is tied to hers if he doesn't kill her or somehow figure out a way to neutralize her. So this is a real, and so to me, much like the ending payoff in The Girl on the Train, the, the hero at the mercy of the villain scene, I mean, it, it's a, a moment, right? But it's really that entire ending payoff. When she's back, he's in big trouble. And then of course we have a false ending He's going to leave her once his name is cleared, but she's pregnant and he also realizes he needs her. That we have the, he thinks he's out of it, but then she pulls him back in and he's got to make another decision, which actually is the point where he makes a nice heroic sacrifice. So it's worth it. <laughs> And I mean, in all of these points, we're just, we're just touching the surface on all of this stuff. Um, all right, so question number three is what is the point of view and narrative device? Now, all right, Leslie, let me tell you what I came up with and you 
let me know what you think of it. <laughs> so the point of view and narrative device, who is telling the story to whom and why? I think, well, it's Nick and Amy telling the story, obviously. I think it's to a jury of their peers to defend their actions. And there is when Nick is, when he confesses that he has a mistress, he even addresses the reader directly. Uh, he says something like, uh, this is the point where you're going to think I'm a real asshole if you don't already think that. And then toward the end, Nick says um, something like, this is when you can pick teams. It's team Nick or team Amy, something like that. So that's why I think it's to a jury of their peers. What do you think? I agree. It very much feels like dueling narratives. They are making their case for their position. And, you know, and, and probably most of the time we are somebody, you know, the, the reader is choosing a side at the end, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. They're both messed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, are. they deserve one another. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's interesting because to, you get the feeling so and no, again, knowing this going in, reading the diary entries, I knew that she had set him up. But if you were reading it fresh, you probably wouldn't pick up on the, all the clues. There were some clues in there that her diary didn't feel like a real diary. It felt like it was written for someone else, um, for an audience, right? And it was. So the thing about this, you know, the takeaway for writers here is that you need to, when you have a story like this, where you're upsetting reality, you have to, you, you can't cheat. So you need to put those clues in, you need your green cuttlefish, but you need to make sure you're adding things that could mean more than one thing, depending on your perspective. We see this in a lot of really excellent stories. Um, the murder of Roger Ackroyd is the one that, you know, to me is the other one that does this really, really well. And, and so that's a, that's a skill and you need to develop it. If this, if you want to do a twist like that, otherwise readers will uh, be very angry. And with this novel, if you just shift it a little bit, it's like a kaleidoscope. If it shifts a little bit, suddenly the whole thing changes. And that is part of its beauty. It's part of its magic. It's the kind of story that a master storyteller can come up with using the same tools that we all have. Gillian Flynn just really knows how to rock them. Um, okay, let's move along to question four, the objects of desire, the external or conscious known want, and the internal or subconscious or unknown need. What do you got for that, Leslie? Well, I'm, you know, as, <laughs> as a former lawyer, a criminal lawyer, I'm thinking he wants to avoid execution. And, you know, that's his primary, right? We never get that far into it, right? He's arrested and charged, but he's never, he's not indicted. He's not at trial, but, but it is clear or the, um, what we accept is that if he's found guilty, he will be executed eventually. Right. So he wants to avoid that, but then he also wants to avoid damnation um, because he doesn't, right. He doesn't want to be in an untenable solution or situation. So when we're looking at, and this ties into the value spectrum too, of course, right? The objects of desire need to relate to the value at stake. And we can define those for the story. And so while, um, 
It's not an attack from Amy. It's not a physical attack from Amy that he should be worried about. It's execution. That is the definition of death in this story. And damnation, we're going to get into more when we talk about the controlling idea. But, but it seems to me that his definition of damnation shifts in the story. And that's what's really important. And hovering above all this is what both of them want is revenge. I mean, this whole thing starts because Amy wants revenge on Nick for one, dragging her to Missouri and away from her beloved New York City, and two, having an affair. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, or certainly like Amy Elliott scorned. Uh, Yeah, so that's hovering above it all. Absolutely. Now, let's get into the controlling idea and theme, because this whole point of damnation we both had to really work at this and think through this. And like I said, we spoke for a couple hours before we even started this podcast, primarily on this point. So when I read the book, really until I spoke with Leslie a couple hours ago, I really saw Nick as ending in damnation. And I think there's an argument there to be made for that. And this is something that, that, as I study my masterwork, in this case, it's gone girl, but in any masterwork that I'm looking at, I'm really focused on this question of what exactly is damnation? How is it, how is it on the table in that particular book? Um, what does it mean for the character in that, in the, in the situation with the, the fictional world within the book? What does damnation look like? Because it's something that in my psychological thriller, I'm grappling with. What does damnation look for my look like for my character? So, if you look at the the sort of boilerplate um, story grid idea of a controlling idea or theme for a thriller, it would be damnation prevails when the hero fails to unleash his gift. Well, now that sort of begs a whole bunch of questions. What is Nick's gift? <laughs> we spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. And we came up with the idea that Nick's gift is his ability to charm and manage Amy and keep her shadow at bay. This is a guy who hasn't really had to work too hard for anything in his life. He's the favored child in the family. He's handsome. He's white. (laughs) He He's not particularly well to do, but he's charming enough and good looking enough that people can forgive his humble beginnings. Then we got to the question of what does damnation mean? And it's really important here that when we're analyzing a story, it's what does the character consider damnation? Not whether the reader or the writer considers it to be damnation. And that's the mistake that I had made. I think from my worldview, Nick finishes the story, damned. He gotta live with this crazy woman and he's pretty crazy himself. And to try and somehow protect this unborn child. Like that to me is a fate worse than death. But the question is not whether I think it's a fate worse than death. The question is, does Nick think it's a fate worse than death? This was the big discussion that Leslie and I had. And we came to the conclusion that from Nick's point of view, he's not damned. For Nick, the fate worse than death is to end up like his father. And so staying with Amy, he, he is going to end up like his father, unless he is held to account very rigidly. The only person who can do that is Amy. She has a very narrow path established for him. And she has zero tolerance for him stepping a toe off that path. So if he were to divorce Amy and marry someone else, he would well, he, he says somewhere in the in the ending payoff somewhere there that if he marries someone else, he'll always find her lacking because she, no matter how clever she is, she won't be as clever as Amy because Amy is amazing, <laughs> right? She, 
she really is the smartest person in the room. Now, her sociopathic tendencies do not help her, but she really is smart. She really is amazing. She really does bring out something in him that nobody else can. And he knows that he needs someone like Amy to keep him from becoming his father. So from Nick's point of view, he ends the book sort of in a state of salvation, not damnation. Leslie, what do you want to add to that? Yes, that was so funny when we, you know, when we got to that point where we're like, okay, well, what does he get? Well, he gets salvation, right? And Amy knows him. And that's the thing that they do for each other, right? He doesn't know her well enough in the beginning. He comes to know her better by the end. And she has known him, understood him from darn near the beginning. And so that's really interesting in terms of like why he must stay with her. She actually sees him. Um, but the controlling idea then that we settle on is we avoid damnation barely when we find purpose to unleash our unique gift. And this was really an interesting thing to, you know, to stumble upon in this story because we've got the, um, Nick's dad, he's right. He's the, Nick wants to avoid that at all costs. He's willing to do anything to avoid being, becoming his father. And so at one point he's like, I don't want to have kids because I don't want to risk turning into that. But at heart, he does want to have kids. He just doesn't want to be his dad. And so the thing about his dad is his dad did not find purpose in fatherhood, but Nick does. So he's been wandering aimlessly, right? He's had no purpose. And then suddenly, oh, this child will need to be protected from my sociopathic wife. Okay, I can do that. Like that gives him purpose. That's when he can be authentic, right? That was that, that was harkens back to the moment in the interview with Rebecca, when he realizes I could be authentic because there was purpose in it. And he didn't feel purpose or meaning in his life with Amy until this moment. There's so much for us to talk about, but we got to wrap this thing up. So Leslie, uh, so we, we wind up every episode by talking about some of our key takeaways. We have talked about so much already today. What would your key takeaway be? What I want to keep in mind and I want our listeners to keep in mind is that even with six episodes devoted to this one story, we will still just be scratching the surface. And it's kind of, it's a little joke because we've said it so many times um, in, in preparing, but just in the course of reviewing and preparing the notes, I have changed my mind about this story so many times. And and yes, there's so many layers, so much to discover here. And, you know, probably more than the average story, just because it is nonlinear, just because it does have these multiple subplots. Now, I can't say that I enjoyed reading the book, but that is probably because it reveals a very disturbing reality of, you know, of the uh, of our arena <laughs> and the skill and attention to detail that Gillian brings to this it it really would have been a shame to miss out on this so yes all of that is to say we're just scraping the surface and this is showing where we begin to study a masterwork 
This is why we read widely and deeply, right? It's not something you would have typically picked up and then you would have missed all of uh, Flynn's craft. So my key takeaway, I've said it before, I'll say it again. This type of nonlinear nested story is not for the faint of heart. It's advanced storytelling. And I'm writing one myself. I did not go into it lightly. I tried everything to not have a nonlinear nested story. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time talking to Leslie trying to figure out how I could write something that was linear, one storyline. But because of the nature of the book I'm writing, I couldn't get it to work and ended up in this story form. If you're writing your first book or one of your first books, I urge you from one writer to another, write a linear one storyline novel and get that working first because as amazing as Gone Girl is, and it, it truly is, you know, my hat is off to the craft here. It's tough to write, it's tough to analyze and to see how all the parts are working together. Um, I'm writing one like it. I am uh, two and a half years in. I have, I'm doing it full time. I have Leslie in my corner and I have Sean Coyne in my corner and I'm still strong. And it's my third novel. So I've, I'm not the most experienced writer in the world, but I got a fair bit of experience under my belt. And it's a tough story form uh, to crack, but when it works well, it works so well. And it is such a crowd pleaser. And it is the type of story that lends itself to multiple readings and multiple insights and aha moments. Um, so study them, admire them, work your way up to them would be my best advice and my key takeaway. If you've read the novel, go through what we're talking about today and see if you can pull out more insights. What do you think about our concept of damnation? Do you think Nick ended at damnation or not? Like these are all, I don't know, maybe we're wrong, but these are the types of things that we love to nerd out about. Anyway, we'll see you next week for the beginning hook. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write, and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work? To support the show, leave us a rating and review, and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash Inner Circle or Writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.